Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, to the program where we gather every day at this time, Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. This is a special edition of Rural Route. Actually, the first half and the first half only is going to be with my buddy from Tuesdays, Andrew Henderson, our across-the-pond version, just the first half of Rural Route. I see you're out and about today, not hunkered down in your dwelling. Well, you've got to earn a living. I've decided that... No, you don't. But many people are trying to keep you from earning a living today. It's, it's quite apparent. <laughs> Actually, um, oh, hang on. Wait a minute, I'll show you. I've, I have to drive around now with my... Oh, no, That's a nice earshot. You're within earshot, Andrew. <laughs> Well, I have to drive around now with my certificate saying that I'm a I'm a, an essential worker. No, you have a certificate? Oh my goodness. Yeah. All right, so uh I got something that I want to get to that's weighing heavy on my mind. It's been building over the time and weighing heavy on my mind meaning I'm thinking a lot about it. But before we get to that, and the yeah. word ins- insurrection is going to come up. I'm just telling you. Insurrection. Yeah, it sounds it's like something it's, you get when you're in old age, but then you go, go carry on. I think it's something you don't get when you're in old age, but besides the point. Um, so <laughs> what happened on this day, 1797, in oh. London that forever shaped the the development of the Western North American continent? I'm including Canada and the United States. Well, the king uh, claimed insurrection. <laughs> No, but that's a good guess given the clues you already have. <laughs> I, I was trying to be clean there, very clean. Oh, shoot. A gentleman named uh, Heatherton, I think, John Heatherton. Heatherton. Heatherton, yes. Heatherton yeah. Yeah. walked out on the streets in London with the first yeah. top hat made of beaver. And he was arrested because he caused such a stir. They literally fined him 500 pounds in 1797 because he wore a top hat. Dogs were barking, women were scared, and he was enjoying walking down the streets with a top hat. And he was arrested. Really? That, yeah. Is that how you felt when you came to uh, the UK with your cowboy hat on? I was waiting to be arrested. <laughs> and so the, the natural question is, how could a guy getting arrested in uh, an insurrectionist, by the way, in 1797, be involved in the development of the Western United States and Canada. Don't know. Was he? Did he? Did he get deported for wearing that um, hat? And, <laughs> no, actually, hey, listen, I don't know why you're laughing. I it, think you can get you can get put in jail for anything these days. It sounds like it, anyway. Oh, you can. Uh, so he, the Brummel, a feller by the name of Brummel, also from London. Loved the idea, picked up the concept of a top hat, and he started building top hats and selling them. And beaver was the choice of material to make the top hat. Consequently, uh, fur trappers settling and uh, taming, so to speak, the western United States and the development of the Hudson Bay Company all led to the development of the western United States in the process of uh, trapping beaver. There you go. so the original top hats were made of beaver um, beaver fur. Not the original. This is beaver on my head right here. Hey, this is I, I'm learning today. This is good stuff. And they chose beaver over rabbit because they were more plentiful and easier to work with. So I'm glad I have a beaver on my head, not a rabbit. That's the moral of the story. It's a great story. 
Yeah. Brilliant. It's, it's made me feel a lot better today after feeling not altogether up uh, this morning, but feeling better now. So I want to tell you why I use the word insurrection, because if there was an insurrectionist in 1797, I see that NPR, National Public Radio, is latching onto the term insurrectionists have been in the West forever, and they've always been agitators and anti-government. So it brings me to where I was five years ago this very week. This is a long story, Andrew. I'm going to try to condense it as quickly as I can to give you the glimpse of it. Ranchers in Oregon, Dwight and Stephen Hammond, beat the federal government out of water rights on federal land in the mid-80s, like 84, 85. The federal government and the Bureau of Land Management, the original BLM, was not happy with this, that they actually, through legal battles in the Ninth Circuit Court, nonetheless, awarded to Hammonds water, saying that that was their water. From that day forward, Hammonds become an enemy of the state. They fabricated a story and said that they were domestic terrorists because they started a backfire with permission of the government to protect their property when the lightning strike hit, hit their ranch land and it burned 138 acres of federal land with permission. The Obama administration labeled them domestic terrorists and Dwight and Stephen Hammond were sentenced to five years in prison. As a result of that, and by the way, President Trump has since pardoned them. As a result of that, Ammon Bundy and a group of true patriots went to Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, which is right in the area where Dwight and Stephen Hammond Ranch, it's in Oregon, Southeast Oregon, Harney County. And they occupied a Malheur National Wildlife Refuge to take a stand against this act of uh, overzealous government trying to rule people's lives instead of understanding we the people. It was a major it was a major media event. It was a big deal for the month of January in 2016. I was called and asked to come to Burns, Oregon, the first Friday on day five of the occupation and host a town hall meeting. I I'm was sorry, the moderator. Well. Say that again. A, a town hall meeting. Okay, yeah. A community okay. meeting where 400 people came to Burns, Oregon. And in this group of 400 people, we had 200 local ranchers yeah. and we had 200 media from around the world. And my job, I, I just assumed my job was to have a very vigorous discussion, talk about the issues, talk about what we saw as solutions. And as long as you're respectful, you get to have the microphone. If you lose respect, I'm taking the microphone away from you. And you're not going to speak more than five minutes because everybody's going to have a chance to speak. I sat and listened to people talk for two hours, two full hours, Andrew, on this Friday night in Burns, Oregon. And did anybody, at, sorry, did anybody get the microphone taken away from them or did they all behave? Two were threatened to have the microphone taken away from them. Everybody else was perfect. Okay. Amazing. And so the, the general consensus of every single person that spoke in that town hall meeting was that we support Ammon Bundy. We want him to peacefully, because obviously uh, the, the deal was that they're in there, they're insurrectionists with guns, and they're implementing their Second Amendment right, and they're just rebels, and blah, 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 the whole rhetoric, right? Every single person that spoke said that we want this to end, we want it to end now, but we do not ask Ammon Bundy to cater to the government wishes. We want it, they're 
people to understand that there's a real issue here. I got up the next morning in Burns, Oregon. I remember clearly and turning my computer on and looking at reports, headlines from the Los Angeles Times, the BBC. They were all there. They were at this meeting. Every single media outlet in the world, 200 media people were present. And Andrew, every single headline said local people in Burns, Oregon spoke last night. They want Ammon Bundy to go home. To what? To go home. Andrew, I was the facilitator of the meeting. That is not even close to what happened. And yet they went to their press immediately. And I believe most of the stories were written before the meeting actually happened, because I read their stories and are like, this, I, I think this, this I, I isn't think even what happened. I think I've clocked where you're going here because I've no idea where you were going here. But what, what an amazing story. Amazing. I was a part of the U.S. Capitol con- um, controlling of the message five years ago. They were practicing on how they've, they've been doing this. Forever. Well, have you seen the accounts that have now come out of the actual event last week? Because, well, I've um, seen a lot of stuff. Then, well, yeah, but the time, there's a big problem with the timeline now. They're saying that nobody that was actually at Trump's part of the rally could have ever got to the Capitol when it was breached. Have you seen that? Uh, well, ironically, I have a video that you can watch. Sorry, there's it's a on. lorry going past. You'll have to say that again. Say that again. I have a video that you can watch with a friend of mine from Missouri that I was visiting with uh, at the time that this was all going down. And when I'm interviewing him, he had been at the, he says there's 1.5 million people at the Trump rally. There are police cars going by so we can document that this was happening. It had already happened, by the way, by the time I did the video with Dr. Tom Blumhars. So I, I'm, I'm part of proving the timeline. I can tell you exactly when the Trump rally ended and when people were storming the Capitol and when the police were going to get the situation under control. But I'm just telling you that, that I lived an experienced part of what's been going on for quite some time. And the reason that NPR write the story yesterday about the insurrection. You, you have seen how. I've been there. I've been a, I've a, been a, a victim. You've seen how a United Press against the people can just make any news up they possibly want. That's what you're saying, really, isn't it? That's spot on what I'm saying. And since yeah. that day, I've not trusted anything that I've read in a major major news outlet unless I knew somebody that actually was part of it. Well, because I saw firsthand what they did. And with that, we'll take a break. More Roll Route after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Continuing on here with a little unique approach to Rural Route. Andrew Henderson joining us on a Wednesday. That's not normal, but there's nothing normal. There, there is no such thing as normal anymore. We each one try to figure out how to carve out our own normal. And I'm not being an alarmist. I'm just letting you know. This is the tip of the iceberg, folks. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Since this across the pond aired earlier this morning, I am getting an amazing number of people who are sending me notes saying, hey, this happened to my brother. I had an uncle, and this is what the media was saying, but we knew that wasn't really happened. We need truth. We need to stand up for the truth in every single aspect. Andrew Henderson, Trent Luce, on the second and last part of this leg of the journey, first half of Roll Route, but the last part of Andrew joining us today. 
Right. Well, and the, you know, that's one of the things that I'm starting to realise that, um, I, you know, I asked you the question this morning, is it, is it normal that people go to their state capitals on inauguration day? And you said, no. And I said, well, why have the Democrats asked for every uh, state to have uh, National Guards at their state capital inauguration, on inauguration day? And um, I find that fascinating. Story, I assure you the story's already written, ready for something to happen. And they'll have a few people there. Oh, oh, by the way, what we now know and came out in trial, Ammon Bundy, who occupied Malheur, with a core group of 15 people that first day after he was acquitted, found not guilty in Portland, Oregon in federal court. Guess what we learned, Andrew? Uh, I'm, I, listen, what you're telling me, it, well, well, I hope well, a lot of people I, are watching this. I need, I need to finish this story, though, before I get lost with it. Yeah, go on. There were more undercover FBI agents at Malheur National Wildlife Refuge than there were patriots who took occupation. It was documented. And guess who the gaslighters were? Guess who the people were who were continually trying to use guns as the driving force? The FBI undercover individuals. This has all been played out before. I've seen it with my own eyes. I was a part of it. And by the way, first time I was ever banned from Facebook, you might guess what week that was. It's not often you shocked me, Trent but you've shot me today. That's a, an amazing bit of information you've just shared with everybody. And it, it, it is becoming very, very alarming, isn't it? Don't you think? I got bad, more bad news. Okay. The two lawyers that represented Ammon, Ammon Bundy in that yeah. lawsuit, which he was acquitted, are no longer walking on the earth. I mean, is that related, though? Did they, get, did they commit suicide? Or oh, yeah, they, they committed suicide. Yep. Pardon? They committed suicide. In fact, we saw the most egregious act of human torture in the courtroom in Portland, Oregon. One of the attorneys was tased in the courtroom for representing his client. We've been oh, here, Andrew. Right. I mean, this, that, that, and, and by the way, there's another little tidbit that connects all of this to today. The Hammond Ranch is in Harney County, Oregon. Uranium One, which is a Chinese corporation controlling and buying uranium from around the world, knowingly gave the Clinton Foundation $1 billion. And it just you, so you, happens. You need that, to be very careful what you say. Oh, no, need to be careful. That's Uranium One, and that uranium is a very well known issue. No, no, I don't and, mean that you're and, telling any lies. I'm just afraid for my friend. I'm, I'm afraid for you. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid. afraid of telling the truth. And no, the reason that we're in this position is too many people have been afraid. That's the story you've just told us. And China was behind it, and the Hammonds were persecuted because they owned the property that was on top of the in the same area and could be an obstruction to them recovering that uranium. This is not a new story, Andrew. It's just chapter two or four or five. We don't even know. Okay. Well. Happy days. Happy day, Tuesday. Happy hey, days. As long as sunshine is is going. <laughs> as long I, as I sunshine is coming to the truth, the it, it's all good. Now. Say that again. I said I want the funds. Can I? I'll give you a bit of British news, right? Okay. Um, Angela Merkel, the uh, um, the uh, um, president of the um, European Union, really, but okay, Germany at the moment, but. 
she's got that in her back pocket as well, has just announced that she's very, very annoyed with the uh, British government for allowing the British virus to spread across Europe. What's the British virus? It's the so-called, um, what do they, mutated version of COVID, oh. which is far more. Now, I want to ask you a question on this, right? So this virus is going all over the world. There's a train that runs from King's Cross Station to Paris every 45 minutes, I believe, plus about six different ferries that go across the, uh, the North Sea from the UK to Europe. I know it. I know it. The problem is we have too many ferries. Ferries are spreading. We have too many ferries. Right. Go go ahead. (laughs) Ferries, too many. But the thing is, the thing is, right. I I'm thinking. Hang on a minute. Nobody stopped any of these flights. Go and look on flight planner or anything. There are planes flying everywhere in the world, and the German Chancellor has now taken the decision to blame the UK for allowing a strain of virus to go into Germany whilst she has a new accord of economic um, I suppose an, an, an economic revolution with the People's Republic of China there seems to be one country involved in all of these situations I don't know if you've noticed or not I have but the, the trouble is I, I, I'm going to say it I mean I, in this country my views are seen you know I I'm Wacko Jacko. Yeah. So am I, by the way. Pardon? So am I. Yeah. Well, but, that, but that's the plan, is to paint anybody who stands up for truth and liberty as an insurrectionist or as a Wacko Jacko. You just have well, to, you I, have well, to ignore the I, what well, they're saying about you and stay to the truth. Well, here's the thing. I want to tell every single person that watches this from my point of view, I can't speak for you, Trent, because that's your voice. But from my point of view, don't go and protest uh, on Inauguration Day. And and because you'll get drawn into something you shouldn't. Be Always be peaceful, but you can make your, your views verbally and with the written hand. You don't need to. You can defend yourselves with weapons, but you don't need to take weapons to those sort of events if you decide to go. It's my, my right, right to take a weapon. I know it is. It's my right I know, to legally I know. take I, a weapon to protect me, myself. Remember, I just said that. I gave you the right. credit that you deserve. I'm saying that if I was an American citizen, I would look at what the people that support you would want you to do, and I would try to go in peace because I think you might get drawn into something you uh, shouldn't get I did into. not say I wasn't going to go in peace. There's a difference between going in peace and going yeah. with your constitutional right to protect yourself. The occupiers of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge did not go brandishing guns and say, we're going to kill you. They went saying, we're going to sit here until we get justice for the Hammonds, and we're going to use these guns to protect ourselves. The people who were brandishing weapons, the people who were putting it in their face, were the FBI undercover plants. And that's exactly what's going to happen on Inauguration Day. There will be plants, no matter what group they represent, that will be there pretending to be patriots, and they won't be patriots. But you cannot give up your constitutional rights. So wouldn't it be better to just let them go themselves and so that nobody can be... um accused of doing something when it wasn't it wasn't in their in their minds to do something anyway yeah i 
I actually am going to give that some thought. Uh, I did write my High Plains Journal column earlier this morning about this very topic and situation, knowing that that's going to be out next week, just before the inauguration day. Uh, we have never gone to our state capitals, and I see no reason for us to go there in 2021. I'm not about avoiding confrontation, but this is a setup. And it's one thing to stand up for your freedom and your liberty in the right place, and it's another thing to be strategic and not be lured into a trap. And that's what's happening. You have a media partnering with uh, some of the wealthiest elites in the world trying to trap you into showing up at the Capitol and taking blame for something you didn't do. Roll route, Trent Luce. And we'll get a, a message from Newton and be back with the second half after this. For quite some time now, I've been sharing with you the advantages of looking at the genomics of these cattle, these animals. But take it from somebody who's been using Neogen and the Igenity test for more than 10 years. You really start to reap the rewards of evaluating the genomics. Mike Healy, Warland, Wyoming. There's a good payback. I changed Igenity's formulation on how it emphasized stability so that it emphasized marbling. And we've been able to to raise our marbling percentage for we started out we were around a 77 78 percent choice to now this this last group we finished last year's 2019 steer calves finished at 92 percent wow. marbling where uh, we had 11 percent prime premium choice had 53 percent so we had 64 percent of the calves recognizing a, a, a pretty substantial premium Full details about your future premiums at Neogen.com. Shining a light on your genetic future. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce, bridging the gap between rural and urban America. Talking about that with Andrew this morning brought back a conversation of the late Lavoie Finnicum, the widowed Lavoie Finnicum's wife, Jeanette. Lavoy was in that Patriot group that went to Malheur that day. And uh, Kate Brown said we need to get rid of the virus. Lavoy Finnicum was the virus. Jeanette Finnicum has become a good friend of mine. And this is a conversation that we had in December of 2017. Oh, isn't that an amazing turnout of events? Um, the truth is finally, some truth is finally getting out. And I emphasize some because I understand there is more to come. Um, but they, it is a mistrial for the Bundys. It's wonderful news. It was wonderful to be there to witness um, the judge come down on the prosecution. Uh, five out of seven of their Brady violations, she detail, you know, she, she spoke about them in detail and I was amazed at how much the prosecution had hid um, had lied about, had purposely falsified new reports. It was astounding to see the amount of uh, the the lengths that they went to to withhold and to um, change the, the the evidence to where the jury would not know the truth. Uh, so I was grateful to have been there. I was grateful to be there with Carol and her sons and Ryan Payne. And, of course, that was the first time I've seen and talked to any of them. 
it was kind of an emotional day for me. Um, Lavoie should have been there. Lavoie should be free. He should still be alive. So it, it, it was kind of an emotional day. But I was so grateful, so very grateful to see them walking with their wives and their children and, um, and walking free for the most part. There is still more to, to do and more um, hoops to jump through. I, I believe they have something to... Um, I'm not a very legal eagle kind of person. So they do have some filings to put out there on the 29th, and then I believe the judge is going to rule whether it's with prejudice or without, which would mean that if she rules, I believe, without prejudice, then that means they will be free and they will not be able to be prosecuted again. Mm -hmm. And what a blessing that that would be because they have done nothing wrong except stand for their property rights, for their right to life and liberty and and the pursuit of happiness, which is to have property. So um, very, very grateful to, to have been there to witness that. So I, I did not show up at Bunkerville, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. I did follow it. I wrote a tremendous amount about it. I did a, a ton of radio about it at the time. I was at Malheur. I was there the first week, spent uh, one day at the refuge, worked on that nonstop for the next six months. And and I put all of that into context because, Jeanette, those of us that were involved, and I'm, my involvement is not nearly as detailed as your involvement, we knew there was uh, FBI corruption. We knew some things that were going on. Yes. We knew that Dan Love was completely a loose cannon yes. in what was happening in Bunkerville. With all of the knowledge that I had, and I think I can speak for most people that are involved in both of these situations, there was even an element of surprise in what we have learned in the past couple of weeks about the calculated effort the FBI and government officials went to to distort, cover up, and blatantly entrap the people involved. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. It is deeper and, and darker and more evil than we ever expected. And another thing that I want to add to your list is the lack of civility, the lack of, of common decency in talking about any type of person who may be under investigation. The things that they were saying about these men, they have attacked our faith and our religion. They, they hung pictures in the office with X's through their faces. Who does that? These, these people in our law enforcement are supposed to be there to serve and protect us, the American citizen. And that, and, and our people who, who are arrested for a, a possible crime, which they have not been convicted of yet, they should be treated with respect going through that process. It is, it is, I'm sorry, my dog is going. <laughs> uh, your your dogs are, the choir is agreeing with everything that you're saying. That's the reason that dog is chiming in, Jeanette. I know that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what we are finding out, the type of character that our law enforcement and FBI have. They have no character. When you behave like that, you are lacking in integrity and character. We need... We need better individuals that serve. And I, and I don't want to lump everybody into the same soup bowl. But for heaven's sakes, there are some really bad actors that we have hired. And we need to remedy the fact that we can't get rid of these bad actors. We're shifting them from one department to another. 
We need to get rid of these people who cannot behave appropriately while employed in our service. One thing that I don't know the answer to, and maybe you do, is that uh, much of our revelation came because of a document from Special Agent Wooten. How did that document come to light? Well, I wish I knew the nice person who sent that, but (laughs) I believe it was probably the agent himself who is maybe, you know, he's a whistleblower, so maybe he's leaking it. I'm not sure. But I know that Matt Shea, a representative up in Washington State, released that. And then a second document the next night, I believe it was a Friday and a Saturday night that these documents were, were being released. At least that's when I started seeing them coming coming out um, in the public. And I'm just grateful that we have a BLM agent who has that integrity and that, that character and that bravery and courage to be able to put that out there because we need to protect people like that who are willing to say and, and put out the truth. Um, and then I'm grateful for Representative Matt Shea, who is not afraid to do the same, to be one who is demanding some from d- demanding for our representatives a- a- across this country and for Congress to do something about this. Thank you to both of them. Congressman Matt Shea is better than a drug-sniffing dog, and I say that because he was at Malheur National Wildlife Refuge the same exact day that Dave Duquette and myself were, and it was Matt Shea who suggested they dig through one particular section of Malheur and many of the documents that have not all fully come to light showing how for all, there's a history of particularly refuge folks and BLM folks who in the case of the Hammonds had hid evidence, had construed evidence to make it look like it was not, and had worked very hard on a PR machine to make Hammonds look like criminals and ultimately then be convicted as domestic terrorists. But it was Matt Shea who sent Ammon and Lavoie in the right direction to find all of that information. Right. You know, they were just trying to protect their home and their livelihood and their property from a fire. And it is common practice to set a back burn, common practice. And so today, with through the Patriot Act, we're able to send American citizens to jail under uh, under a terrorist act. Uh, and and they're, they're forever labeled as terrorists. We really need we have we need an overhaul. <laughs> we need an overhaul. Yeah, and for people who are not totally up to date on all of this, there is a a provision in both the handbook of the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. It says that permittees grazing their allotments are not allowed to be persecuted for uh, burns because burning is a tool utilized to manage the resource. And the reason they're right. charged as domestic terrorists is because they wanted to bypass that provision that's in both handbooks, which should be followed. I don't think that comes to the forefront often enough as it relates to the Hammond. Right, and and, and they wanted their land. They wanted the minerals. They wanted all of that. You know, it, it, the Clintons are all involved in it. It's, 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 it's a deep state there as well. Uh, Jeanette, I don't know if you've seen this. This morning I got a... a Bloomberg News report that Attorney General Jeff Sessions has called for an investigation into the Uranium One tie to the Clintons. Oh, Obviously, wow. Yeah, there was not a direct tie to what you and I are talking about today, but there was a movement in the right direction from Washington, D.C. We applaud that. 
Yes, that's amazing. I'm I'm grateful that he is finally paying attention to that, and I I hope and pray that um, he will continue to look into some of these other organizations, the FBI, the CIA, the BLM. I also believe that we need to de-arm all of these agencies, maybe not the FBI, but the BLM, the Park Service, the Forest Service. They, they don't need to have their own military within their, within their organization, their law enforcement. We, don't, we have law enforcement. We have sheriffs. We have police officers. We don't need every agency armed against us. They're there to do something else. They're there to help manage the land, not walk around with weapons and intimidating and um, killing people. So, Jeanette, last week I had uh, Shauna Cox on another program, and I referenced just in passing that there was a documentary crew in Burns, Oregon, working on a documentary about the the killing of Lavoie Finnicum. I said that in passing, and somebody latched onto that, and they went to Facebook, and there was a lot of... Um, questions about what's going on with that you do know about that what can you share with us about that today yes um i'm really excited about this project i have a lot of faith in the center for self-governance i have a lot of faith in mark air the president of that company and all of the people who work within it um they have uh committed to uh telling lavoy's story it, the title will be dead man talking he will be doing a lot of his own talking. You will get to know him. You will understand him after these two hours. Um, I'm really excited. And our family has last say on what actually goes out. And, and I say that because I want the truth to come out. I don't want it manipulated like it has been in other documentaries that have been put out there. I don't want the lies. I want the truth to come out about who my husband was, what he stood for, what he was doing up there in Burns, Oregon. And, and what he was standing for here at home um, for his own property and his own uh, rights. Um, the Kickstarter project is, is, is going really well. We have a crowdfunding um, uh, button that you can uh, attach to on my website. Um, it's, it's to help, and help to uh, get this project off the ground. Um, so we've got some fun little things set up there. If you donate so much to the project, this money is not coming to me. I just want to put that out there. It's going to help pay for all of the expenses of putting this documentary together. Jeanette Finning, 2021, she's still fighting. In fact, I'm going to get her on a full roll route. The anniversary of the murder of LaVoy Finnegan is coming up January 26th. More roll route. Final segment after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce into the final segment of Roll Routes. Just want to take a different tone a bit and just randomly picked a conversation that's never been on Roll Route before with Greg Yoakum. Unless you're living in a cave, you know that the economy in farm country is less than adequate. There's been several challenges. In fact, this week I've had many conversations that involve particularly the dairy sector, but it's not just the dairymen. Every single segment of agriculture is wondering how to survive. And Greg Yoakum joining us now from, what are you in? You'd be in uh, Brown County? Yes. Brown County, Nebraska, north central Nebraska. And uh, you called me saying, Trent, why don't you do more about the plight of the U.S. farmer? 
What's on your mind, Greg? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just wanting to get the information out to let people know really how bad the ag sector is suffering. I've been farming myself for 20 years here on my place, and since 2014, we've kind of been sliding. You know, the the commodities, just the price is just way below production cost. And this year we come up to the decision where we couldn't cash flow it, so we decided to get out before everything, you know, lost everything. And not just me, you know, we've got neighbors and around the area that uh, the banks have shut them down because there's just, you know, nobody can cash flow it. So there's a lot of businesses in the area that are going to lose, um, you know, the support of the small farmer. The the bigger farmers are picking up the extra deal, but I know they're just like us. They can't really cash flow it unless they've got other entities mm-hmm. that they're doing. But the thing of it is, is, is there's a lot of, you know, part-time employees on these small farmers. So the employment, you know, like myself, will have to sell equipment and go find a job somewhere. And a lot of farmers are picking up, the bigger farmers are picking up extra acres, but they're not picking up the extra help because they can't afford it. They're just, you know, picking up more acres trying to do it. Yeah, it seems like there's always a correction when um, farms consolidate the bigger farmers and and they have the same impact. I mean, economies of scale only go so far when you're losing money with every acre you plant. Mm-hmm. But you've made that de- you've met Greg, Greg. You've made that decision that you're going to sell out on your own. Yes, because uh, I'm to the point that you know if I w- take the gamble of going, if they, if the prices would come back, it would be great. But if it don't, then I have start losing the chance of losing my land, which you know I've worked long and hard for. Mm-hmm. And they were talking, you know, this the the experts were saying this is supposed to be a five year deal well we're in the fourth year of the five years so if this is true we go another year uh there's going to be a lot more banks shutting guys down and and where do you get to the point that like if i sell my machinery you know who's left to buy it because the bigger farmers don't want the the older stuff they want the newer stuff and it's just it's going to just start tearing these rural communities down farther than they already are and you indicated to me that um, the banks are telling a number of people in the area that you're done. Bring your mm-hmm. your doll, uh, as Hank Vogler would say, your dolls and dishes to town. You're done. Yes, and the problem is with some of the the younger ones are trying. They're going to the FSA program. You know, the, trying to get through the government. Well, some of them might be able to pick that up, but if still if they can't cash flow it it's pretty hard to get a loan and right now it's you know it's you know corn would have to at least be four bucks to probably be the break even but if you're just going to break even why do it you know i've been been trying to live the american dream you know own my own place and own farm and you know i've been at it for like i said 20 years on my own and it's been a nice deal but it's just you know when do you when do you when do you quit you know and i we finally made the decision to quit. I really didn't want to, but you have a chance of losing everything. Well, it kind of makes the decision for you. So what's the answer? I don't know. That's what I, 
I know I see like the government will, you know, like the GM when, when some of the bigger corporations and industries are going down, they seem to get a bailout. But the, when it comes to the agriculture sector, section, we just, I guess we're out here on our own. And I guess until people start feeling the effect more in the grocery stores and that don't have nothing to eat, it'll probably kick in, but then it'll be too late. But we still need a bunch of these little farmers around because even the mega farmers can't farm at all. Right. So I, I would, I'd like to see how you compare it to me on this. I, I would, um, I would never be in favor of a bailout, but the government has created so many artificial barriers, so many uh, cost of doing business that have, have ultimately increased every one of our inputs. It would, it would seem yeah. to me that the best solution is to do things, and maybe this is just so problematic and would take such a period of time that it's not going to help do anything because we're not talking about what might happen in 2018. You're talking about what's happening now. Yes. Yeah, We. it's to the point that something has to happen fairly quick, you know, just like for myself, you know, I'd like to continue, but, you know, it's going to be too late time something comes out. And I'm like you, I don't want to bail out, but with the speculator and the way they control you know, that's the problem when big businesses, you know, start linking together. They have control of, of a lot of things, and we we absolutely have no control of what, the you know, the, the markets do. And we just kind of just hold our breath thinking you know, that someday it's going to get better. But it, like I said, for the last four years, it's just kind of not been there. And we're continuing to roll the same way. And if it, something doesn't change, then... Uh, the ag sector is going to be in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Greg, what what was your involvement? Were you in row crop, cattle too? What what did you yes, do with farming? I I had I had I had a cow calf operation, and I did finally get rid of those because of the the pasture rent was just you know getting more than what the cattle would produce. And then I soybean corn acres, and it just like I said it. I farmed about about a thousand acres, so I'm not a, a big farmer, but just mm-hmm. you know, just you know, kept thinking, well, we can pay the operating off, and then every year, and then you know, it just keeps getting a little bit bigger, and then it come to this year, what do I do? And w- sat down with the banker, and they were saying, well, well, you can go again, but I pulled the the rope and said no because I couldn't cash flow it, and I like I said, you know, I I didn't buy the land to sell it, I'd like to pass it on, but the problem is too. Then, if you do sell it, then the capital gains will get to you. So it's kind of a yeah a bad deal. Another example. Um, I don't want to share information out of school, but my mother was here this week, and my family has been on the same land in Quincy, Illinois, since 1832. I left in I left Illinois in 1988. But we lost my father last fall, and there's been a process of selling the equipment to my brother-in-law, who my sister built a home on the original home farm years ten years ago. And she just learned because of a new tax accounting or accountant that in the tax scenario the previous accountant had made mistakes, and she owes like a hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars for machinery that she ultimately sold 
without cash in hand to my brother-in-law. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, all of this contribute when you don't when you don't have profitable prices, and then you have all of this tax burden. And, and for those of us in Nebraska, we know that we we face this unfair, completely ridiculous property tax burden. All of these things pile up. And even if it was profitable, Greg, it would be tough to make it work with, again, what I'm talking about in terms of these barriers that prevent us from being profitable. That, to me, just is the glaring problem. And, again, I, I identify problems without a clear-cut solution. It's, it's perplexing. Yeah, and that's I've, well, I've talked to my accountant, too. And, you know, if I would have to sell land after selling my equipment, well, I can't do that because, of the tax burden and the capital gain, so um, I, it, like you said, how do you how do you pay income tax when you're not making any money? And then also, <laughs> yeah, I, you I, sell I, land. I ran, That's the, and that goes against everything yeah. you've spent your whole life doing. Yep, I did. Like I said, I didn't buy this land to sell. You know, my where my homestead is, it's been in the family for a hundred years. I went and come and bought my own place. And wanted to start, you know, handing it down to my family, but where we're at now, I don't know if that's possible because right now I've rented my land out mm-hmm. to another farmer that, and I'm, I'm hoping that they can make it too. But for what I'm, you know, I'm still making a land payment, and then I have insurance, and then the taxes. I'm still nine thousand dollars short from paying the bill. Yeah, I can't get enough for what this land's being taxed at and bringing. And and honestly, I'm always critical. Because uh, typically I throw the I farmer in there, the I Illinois, mm-hmm. Iowa, Indiana farmer, mm-hmm. because you know those corn, soybean states. Well, corn's going to be cheap this year. It's, we're gonna, not going to make money, so we need to get more corn than ever. I've never mm-hmm. understood that thought process, but when you focus on solutions, I really don't know what the solution ever was. Did you you were in North Central Nebraska? planting corn and soybeans was there ever another option that was viable no no everything you know here in brown county like wheat we cannot insure wheat so wheat program is out of the question but you know the only thing is to make feed and run it through the hoof but sometimes that doesn't work either yeah well greg i think we've done a good job bringing awareness i feel like um i'm inadequate in bringing a solution yeah, me too. I just like to have these people know, you know, it, I don't know, like I said, all around the communities that we're slowly seeing the banks shutting them down and, and that people are making the decision to quit like me, but it's not the way I want to go. But like I said, you know, the, the main thing is to hold on to the land, but, you know, if we don't get rid of some of this, these taxes, you know, somehow, then the land's going to be hard to hang on to, too. Yeah. Uh, final note, we have LB 947, which is a short-term relief for our state in our property tax. Have you contacted your elected official, your senator, about that this week? Yes. Good. Yes. Uh, not this week, but I've talked to him. Yeah. yeah. Greg Yoakum joining us from Brown County, Nebraska, sharing a situation that uh, many farmers just don't want to talk about. So I thank you for reaching out, and hopefully it will stimulate some coffee shop that uh, – discussion that will maybe lead to a solution. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for the time. And with that, we've had some food for thought today, without a doubt. All roads do lead to a roll route.
And Marlon Will is awaiting your call at Lone Creek Kettle Company. He's got some information about the certified Piedmontese system he'd like to share with you. Get full details at LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Again, Marlon Will, certified Piedmontese. 